and welcome to Geek Sweat. We are the podcast series for your film news, reviews, and interviews. Our segments include Cult TV, Review Sweat, Hot Topic, Trailer Talk, and Inspiration Interview. You can find us on several different podcast channels, including Acast, Spotify, Spreaker, Castbox FM, Player FM, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Today, we are doing a recording during the coronavirus pandemic era, and we are recording live and remotely in areas of London per presenter. Please enjoy this episode. Great, fantastic. So, Trev, we are very happy to welcome to Geek Sweat today as part of our inspiration interview series, the actor Ed Stoppard. Ed, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Um, you just sprung. You've stu- thank you, thank you very much, um, both of you. You've actually just sprung on me the concept that this is to be in some way inspiring. Uh, which wasn't in the original yeah. email, and I don't believe we've discussed it. So yeah. I'm just going to kind of put in a caveat at the beginning. Sure. Uh, I hadn't intended to be inspiring today. Okay. So if I'm not, that's really not my fault. And yeah, I just divest myself of any responsibility. Noted. That said, let's dive right in. Yeah, I mean, that'll be up to us and our questions to kind of tease the inspiration out of you, Ed. So that'll leave it down to us. I'll take take that. I'll take that. Um, For anyone who's um, not familiar with um, who you are or where you're from, could you give us an idea of perhaps where you were born and what kind of filmmaking or community presence there was in the area you grew up in? I mean, I'm assuming that everyone knows exactly who I am and has my entire oeuvre on their shelf, prominently yeah. positioned beneath their television, <laughs> I'm, guess, I'm guessing. But yeah. I suppose, there, I guess there might be one or two. So for their benefit, um, I, was actually, I was actually brought up um, about two miles from Pinewood Studios. Oh, wow. Sort of more by chance than design. But, um, yeah, we moved there when I was, you know, when I, I think before I was born. And, and we lived there until I went to university when I was 18. And sort of that was that. Was that. Um, I mean, in terms of, you know, it was the 70s. So, and I don't even remember actually us owning like an 8 mil camera or anything. I don't think we, I mean, we had a Polaroid. We were a yeah. Polaroid family, so that tells you a lot. That's instant um, pictures. That's instant pi- Yes, yes. For those of you, for those of our <laughs> listeners who are under 45. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but my, one of my older brothers, he went to Bournemouth Film School. Let me think, this would have been late 80s. Do I mean that? Yeah, late 80s. And um, he actually... He was a budding filmmaker. Um, He was a very good artist and he just had a real gift. And he, and he, anyway, he, he made a couple of very, very good short films. And I remember watching this um, student film he'd made at Bournemouth that was absolutely astonishing. It was sci-fi. 
Oh, and wow. it was, four, you know, it was like four minutes long and it was absolutely brilliant. I am going to just quickly tell you the concept, sure. safe in the knowledge that you'll just edit it out if you, if you find it sort of tedious. No, but, cool. um, this could be my one moment of inspiration. <laughs> so this is a shout out to my brother, Barney, um, yeah. who now works in VFX as it happens. Yeah. So he's sort of still in the business. Um, yeah. It was called the exhibit and you found yourself in this kind of dark corridor, queue of people. You're like, where the hell am I? Shuffle, shuffle. There was a kind of bright light at the end and then darkness, bright light, darkness, bright light, darkness. We're getting close to the light. Eventually you realize that the light is a door opening and you're kind of blinded by the light. And then we cut to the exterior and we're in this kind of field on a hillside overlooking Bournemouth. And you're like, oh, right. And there are other kind of people in the field ahead of you, sort of dotted around, kind of going, oh, look, you know, and sort of... Yeah. And then he basically, he wanted to pull out in a top shot from the field, from our mother and child who were our protagonists. Yeah. But he's basically made a series of matte paintings so that okay. he, he pulled out of the camera and basically he pulled out from a hillside in Bournemouth out into orbit of the planet Earth to reveal that the entire Earth was covered in urban development apart yeah. from this one tiny green dot so the field went from being a field to a field in an urban area to a yeah. green dot in an urban area to boom, 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 pull out to the british isles that wow. the whole thing yeah. is nice the green dot gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and smaller until you're just seeing the whole globe and it's just covered yeah. in, in construction incredible in yeah. and it was called the exhibit and it was like a four and a half minute student film i remember watching well, this and i would have been i mean barney's five years older than me so you know, I was probably like 14 or something. And I remember just sitting there slack-jawed. And, wow. and actually, yeah, that was definitely a moment where I thought, whatever it is Barney's into, it's worth yeah. being into. I was sure. inspired by it. There you go. There's my, there's my I've been inspired. We were like three minutes, 20 in, and yeah. I've already dropped wow. in. That's an inspiration ahead of the curve. We are. Um, so anyway, so my older brother Barney was into was 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 a filmmaker. That film, the way you explained it, reminded me of um, Ale the ending to Alejandro Jodorowsky's Holy Mountain. I think when um, I haven't seen it. Okay, I don't want to oh. give away the clip, but the, um, there's a scene in it where um, uh, the film kind of pans out and it kind of breaks the fourth wall, sort of thing. But I don't want to say too much. But it, huh. if, if check out Holy Mountain. If you can, okay. and um, you up. might revisit, you might see some elements of um, the, in the ending just, of what Barney's piece film was. How appalling would it be uh, if that film predated my brother's short film, and that it became clear that he'd essentially just nicked? <laughs> no, no, I don't, I don't think he no, nicked it. But I, don't I think, do this to me, Trevor. No, no, don't, I don't, <laughs> don't, don't undermine my moment of inspiration. I'm just saying, it, it, felt, it felt like he's up there with the highest I'll thinkers. I'll check it out. I'll check it out. He's up there with I'll the highest thinkers in directing. What do you say? What is it? Holy Mountain? The Holy, Holy Mountain. Mountain with, the Holy I'll Mountain. send you I'll an email about it after. Yeah. So, Ed, would you say your first inspiration to be an actor then came from film rather than theatre? And specifically your brother's film? Well, I now realise um, 30 years after the event that um, actually it was, that was kind of a moment. It definitely was a moment. I mean, yeah, I, I'll tell you, it was a moment in part because I remember watching it going, Jesus, 
how lucky is Barney? He's like 19 years old and he knows what it is he's going to do. As it happens, he isn't, no, he's no longer a filmmaker, but he was for a while. And that was kind of inspiring, you know, to know that there were people out there who had things called vocations um, and that you could follow them and you could discover these things in your teens. You know, I think that seed was kind of planted subconsciously. Um, In terms of, I sort of had, I've got a very clear cinematic. Actually, I've got two, both of which were care of Barney, the same brother. Introductions, two cinematic ones, both very, very different. Uh, One was Paper Moon by Peter Bogdanovich. And the other was Blade Runner. And we wore out our copy of Blade Runner. I mean, we really did. Um, And even to this day, you know, I can't walk past a kind of, um, you know, square cross-sectioned whiskey glass without immediately picturing Deckard. Yeah. In his, in his apartment in, oh, in I actually had exactly the same experience you see them in charity shop windows right. sometimes and I always do a double take and think yeah. of that a friend of mine got me one because I was like going on and on about it um, so Blade Runner Blade Runner definitely I mean as a fan of Blade Runner um, did you watch it at the cinema did you watch it when it came out on the VHS or did you watch one of the later versions because there was obviously the director's cut that came after so many different cuts of Blade Runner. Which one did you watch? Well, I don't think I ever saw it in the cinema, but we had a copy on video. It was probably, you know, shown on BBC the year after it was released or something, and we videoed it. Mm. And we watched it a lot. Mm. And, you know, and I I seem to remember, like, Barney and I having sort of discussions about you know, the shit ending and, um, you know, whether Deckard was a replicant and, and stuff and, you know, and sort of little funny things with Rachel and, and, you know, why, um, you know, Rutger Hauer's character saves him. We had all those sort of discussions, but the thing was what I kind of loved about it was the creation of, a world which you, the audience, could inhabit. Yeah. I couldn't remember a film that had done that so successfully. And in fairness, to this day, it can, you know, stand up next to any film in, on those terms. It's incredibly convincing. It's, it's like an entire astonishing. world. It's absolutely astonishing. And I mean, and everything like the Vangelis score, you know, it ought to have aged terribly, but it hasn't. Yeah. And that opening shot of just the gas plumes coming up in the darkness and stuff and the Vangelis yeah. come in. I mean, I, it warrants a fuck. Yeah. It really does warrant an expletive. It's, it remains one of the most astonishing moments in cinema for me. So those two films and, and then, yeah. And then in theater, there's a great actor called Ian Glenn, who is now sort of world famous because he's in game of Thrones. Sure. Um, but you know, he's a, he's a, brilliant British actor who can do anything in any medium. Um, And I saw him on stage when I was uh, 14 or 15, 14 probably. And, and, and I remember I didn't think, Oh, I want to do what he's doing. I actually thought 
I want to be him. And in some respects, my entire career has been a failed attempt to be Ian Glenn. Yeah. I now realise. Have you said this to him? I sort of have. No, I have because I'm I'm very proud to say he's a friend of mine. Um, And he knows that essentially I've sort of had a crush on him when I was 14 and that crush (laughs) has remained over the following 31 years. But, you know, he's he's, he's such a sort of pat phrase, but he really is an actor's actor. Really? Um, He's not showy. Yeah. But he's just so skilled. Anyway, I saw Ian on stage when I was about 14 and just thought that him, that guy. What was the play? It was actually one of my father's plays. It was a play called Hapgood um, okay. that was uh, that premiered in 1989. Uh, and it was about MI5 and Russian spies. Um, it's good. It's a good play, and 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 particle phys- and and uh, nuclear physics, subatomic and um, quantum mechanics, um, obviously. Um, so, yeah, and he played a he plays a, a Russian double agent in it, and he's was just brilliant. Uh, so yeah, so those were my those those were kind of certainly points of inspiration. Yes. Can, yeah. Do you tell us a little bit more about Paper Moon? Because maybe some of our listeners are not familiar with that one. It's Peter Bogdanovich, isn't it? It's Peter Bogdanovich, and it's Ryan O'Neill and his daughter Tatum O'Neill. And Tatum O'Neill, I think, is eight. She won an Oscar for it. And their on-screen relationship, it's just mesmerising. And, you know, I think their actual relationship in, in real life was tricky. And I don't think Ryan O'Neill was a particularly great dad, and Tatum O'Neill sort of famously went off the rails. But... Uh, and it's set in in kind of depression era Midwest United States, and it's about the two of them. It's a kind of it's a road movie, really. It's about the two of them travelling together, and they and well, I won't, I won't give it away, but you know they don't know each other, and yet they're kind of thrown together in these strange circumstances. It's in black and white. Uh, the l- the light is it's that bright white light that you get on the planes where there's just nothing to disturb the direct sunlight um and the dust and the expanse and he just he just does amazing things with the camera there's one shot in it which is like breathtaking where they're driving this kind of jalopy, open-topped style 1930s car along a road, which is virtually uh, in the middle of nowhere. Um, and um, it's just one single shot. And the camera, maybe they're on a low loader, or the camera's mounted on the front of the, of the actual car that Ryan and Nina's driving. But the, the journey over the kind of three minutes of this shot the characters, the journey the two characters go on. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in filmmaking. And it's worth looking up. I don't know if it's on YouTube or anything. It's hard to get a copy. My kids, bless them, got me a copy for my birthday a few years ago because I was just going on and on about it. And they now love it. And we quote lines from Paper Moon. Um, But Tatum O'Neill is astonishing. She's astonishing. And it's a wonderful film. Wonderful film. I was just taking a quick look. It's 8.1 on IMDb, even today. 8.1? So, 
yeah. what, out of eight? Out of ten. So it's like, but it's like um, that's pr- a pretty high rating considering the film. It should, I mean, is well, like fifty it's years virtually, old. Now. My, for me, it's like it's like flawless. Yeah, I mean, there isn't. There's no element of the film where you kind of go, yeah, maybe I would have recast the actor. Oh, why did you shoot it like that? That scene. It's just not. It's flawless. Mm. It's flawless. It, like the end, everything. It's flawless. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Anywho, so. I'd like to ask, Ed, what was the first moment that had a real impact on you as an individual to make you want to pursue acting or at least say, this isn't just a dream, this is my ambition? Uh, uh, Oh, well... uh, Well, uh, the truth is I was sort of in denial about ever pursuing it professionally for a long, long time essentially till I left university and I left university and thought, well, what the hell am I going to do now with a French degree? And kind of booming back to me was this voice in my head going, if you, if you die, having never tried to be an actor, you'll, you won't be able to forgive yourself. Um, so I thought, Oh damn, oh, I better, I better see if I can be an actor. And it was sort of, in a way it was that simple. I had done lots of acting at school and I was, you know, and, and, so, and I had experienced um, that toxic but intoxicating combination of terror and exhilaration. And, you know, it was, new, it, was something, it was something I knew I had an affinity for and I loved but was also terrified of. And I just knew that I had to give it a go. Yeah. Uh, and if I got, you know, and if I did it for four or five years and nothing happened, then fine. You know, I'd, I'd train as a plumber or whatever and get on with it. And I've just been very lucky that, you know, the fates have been kind and I've managed to earn a living. Yeah. But, but, you know, I'd been, I'd been enjoying acting since I was a kid, but it was always just kind of school stuff and mucking around, really, doing kind of sketches at school and things. I remember doing, like, not nine o'clock news sketches and things like that. And it was just for fun. I mean, I, obviously, I knew that it could be a career, but I was too frightened to even say to myself, maybe I could try this as a career. Yeah. And it wasn't until I was essentially forced into, you know, looking that decision square in the eyes that I kind of resolved to give it a go. Was there a particular project or platform where you said, this is, this is me being an actor I mean, you go to drama school and you think, all right, well, I'm being an actor now as you like roll around on the ground in a pair of, you know, a pair of tights. Um, But in terms of jobs, I mean, you know, the first play I did uh, was at the Vaudeville Theatre on the Strand. And it it was this Pulitzer Prize winning play from America called Wit. Mike Nichols made a movie of it with Emma Thompson. And... um, and, you know, it was a huge hit in America. And we were on at exactly the same time as The Graduate with Kathleen Turner. Wow. And our lead actress was a wonderful woman called Kathleen Chalfont, who had played the role in America, and she'd come over to do the London transfer. And uh, in our show, at the very, very end of the show, Kathy would, like, she was a cancer patient, 
And at the very end of the show, she would like remove her gown, her hospital gown, and sort of stand there naked as the kind of lights flared up very bright. And then we go to black and that was the end of the show. And famously, Kathleen Turner also removed her clothes up the road no. in The Graduate. And we used to joke that there were two American Cathys taking their clothes off, but yeah. only one of them was playing to full houses. And we closed <laughs> after six weeks. And it oh, was, no. more, it was, I mean, I didn't, in a weird way, I didn't mind because I'd never done a run of a play longer than three performances. So, you know, to do like nearly 50 was astonishing. Wow. Um, but I felt awful for Kathy and our producers. Um, but, you know, to, to do 50-odd shows on a stage in the West End and essentially not die, uh, that was sort of fairly life-affirming. And then I guess the kind of companion piece would be doing The Pianist in 2001, which I think was about... I think I did Wit in the autumn of 2000 and then I did The Pianist in the spring, summer of 2001. Um, the pianist being a, a film by Roman Polanski, and you know that you know that was like big boy filmmaking. Um, and actually, and I must admit, you know, I learned a huge amount making that film. Um, you know, he's he's not the easiest guy in the world, Polanski, and you know his his kind of extremely checkered past speaks to itself and we, i suppose we don't really need to rake over those coals but in terms of you know being a schooling on us on a film set yeah it was it was it was pretty you know pretty educational um in terms of what how a professional film set should run what a professional director sounds like and you know he could be very sort of dictatorial he was very dictatorial and, you know, some of his methods were, could be quite cruel at the same time. He could drop in just a kind of one note that would just release the scene for you or release the speech or release this moment. And to be honest, in my experience, there actually aren't many directors who can do that. You know, sad to say. Is there a, a specific, uh thing that you remember like a note gave yeah, you that I do. just made everything Actually, make sense yeah i do um there's a scene where my character and adrian brody's character we're brothers we come home from this market in the in the ghetto where we've been trying to sell some books and to find this jewish policeman in our apartment who we kind of know and the jewish policeman has come to ask me if i want to join the jewish police and you know, my character, you know, he's a bit of a kind of revolutionary um, and he has no interest in joining the Jewish police. Quite the contrary. He rather despises the whole notion of the Jewish police. And we were doing this scene where my character is being very sarcastic with the policeman and pretending not to understand what he's asking him and da, da, da. And Polanski came up to me. And, you know, there was a lot of shouting on the set and a lot of all that kind of business. And he came up to me. I was sort of lying, half lying on this kind of bed, leaning against the wall. And he came up to me after a couple of takes. And the, the actor playing the policeman was a guy called Ray. Roy, sorry, Roy Smiles. Lovely guy, brilliant, very funny, great writer. And he came up to me and he just sort of whispered to me. No one else, just for me, it wasn't, no one else could hear. He came up to me, he said, he said, Ed, Ed, it's just you and Roy. It's just you and Roy talking. Hmm? That's it. 
just you and Roy. And then he turned around and walked away and went, okay, no. good, let's go, let's shoot another one. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh God, yeah, it's just me and Roy. I think he'd kind of twigged that Roy and I were quite good friends, that we got on well and da, da, da. And it just kind of loosened the whole thing up. And it just also made it very simple. And I have a tendency to overcomplicate things. So actually, it was also a way of him going, just simplify it. Just talk to Roy. Just chat to Roy. And I'm, I'm, as I, well, I'm recounting it now, 19 years later, so it clearly stuck with me. Wow, amazing. amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very harrowing film. I actually saw it in Poland, Did and you? people in the audience were sobbing all the way through. Right. So, well, with good yeah, reason. Yeah, with very good reason. So, I mean, did you yeah. feel any weight of responsibility making that film, given the, how important the subject matter was? I, was too, I mean, a little bit, but I was so young and so green that I did just kind of, you know, my main motivation was not to sort of stand there with my mouth open, with drool um, dripping down my chin, because that was, that was kind of how I felt most of the time. Um, but actually, but certainly Maureen Lippman played my mum. And, and we all knew how important it was to Polanski. Um, so we, yeah, we, we, you know, we, we did feel it, but I, I sort of didn't feel that it was something I had to sort of shoulder as it were. So, um, but, you, but, you know, certain scenes, you know, the scene in the Umschlagplatz where basically there's, I think there were like 2000 extras in the hot summer sun, uh, and we're all supposed to be kind of waiting to get onto the cattle trucks. And then the scene where they kind of throw us on the cattle trucks, you know, there were certain scenes that were pretty visceral. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've done a few Jewish roles and I've even done a few kind of, uh, well, not specifically Holocaust, but anyway, you know, that periods of Jewish persecution is something yeah. I've done two or three times. I don't know why. I was going to say, do you feel that when you're drawn into these kind of difficult or these roles that are, 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 are based on difficult times, do you feel like you've added more to your acting armory because you've allowed yourself to experience a character from a different era? Um. I, yeah, I quite, I like putting distance between, I like it when the character puts distance between me and the character. Um, I, you know, I've, I've been kind of thinking about this quite a lot recently. Um, I've always sort of joked that I like characters who have a limp and a squint, you know. Um, and so... You know, any kind of jump in time away from the present day, I'm always quite happy about. Uh, I mean, there's this kind of sort of paradox that you've got to slightly negotiate as an actor, which is that, you know, you have to travel towards the character because, you know, inevitably the character is not you unless you're literally playing yourself in a film, the character isn't you. So you've got to travel some distance. But then at the same time, 
to make it real, you've got to find the truth within you. You know, even if you're playing Chewbacca, you've actually got to sort of somehow, that's not a great, <laughs> that's not a great example because the man's wearing a rug and a, over his head. But, you know, it doesn't, you know, even if you're playing Adolf Hitler, you can't think, oh, Hitler, Hitler was an asshole. No, Adolf Hitler didn't think he was an asshole. Adolf Hitler thought he was like Superman. Yeah. So, you know, you ha- and you've got to find that part in you of massive egocentricity and psychopathy or something. And we've all got a bit of that inside us. And you've got to try and find that and run with that and amplify that and da-da-da. So, um... Yeah, there's always, it's always nice to have, you know, anything that allows me to feel that I'm inhabiting someone distinct from me. Um, But I I think I've figured out, well, I figured out quite early on, actually, that I've sort of, I feel like I've somehow performed better in extremists. So I'm really not very good at playing roles you know, like the guys on Friends, I could never do that. Yeah. Even if it was a drama, I could never do it. If it was like, if, you know, people just sitting around chatting, I can't do that. Um, yeah. I'm much better off, you know, if, I'm, you know if, if, my, if my child has just been killed in front of me, I'm much happier mm. on screen, we're talking, um, yeah. than, than if I have to, you know, make small talk at a bar with an attractive woman. Sure. I mean, I've <clears throat> um, for years and years and years, uh, there were kind of there was a segment of characters which, in my head, I just labelled Jakes because they always Jakes. seemed to be called Jake. Yeah, yeah, they always seemed to be called Jake, mm. and they were always guys. You know, they were always sort of guys who were waking up next to an attractive woman in the third scene of the thing. And my heart would just sink because I just don't know how to do, I don't know how to do those people. Would you say your jakes are kind of an, a, an excuse for an English actor to play an American character? No, well, I mean, sometimes That's they're Americans and sometimes they're British. Oh, okay. They're just, they're just sort of slightly kind of central casting, mm. you know, leads, you know, like a central casting lead, you know, you know what I mean? You know, yeah. like, you know, you know what I mean. I mean, um, I mean, I can drop some names here because the thing is, some of your projects, there seems to be a theme of period dramas set in a type, time of deep conflict. So you've got The Pianist, which is kind of like the war. Uh, you've got Joy Division, Ancient Rome, Mandela, The Prison Years, mm-hmm. and The Musketeers. So do you feel that there's... Um, you're playing towards some emerging motivation that wasn't being met by the kind of Jake characters that you, that you were being offered. I I think that, you know, the, the Jake type characters, the obstacles that they were asked to overcome felt banal to me. Sure. Uh, And the, the more, the more I have to kind of wrestle with something but something kind of internal and intrinsic and, and, and which will have a kind of fundamental effect on my life, on my character's life, the sort of happier I am. Um, it's about, somehow it's like, you know, 
it's like trying to kind of keep a grip on a rock face. And I want the surface to be covered in things I can grab onto. And the really, I've got to, I've, I've done it now, so I might as well carry on. The Jake type rolls, they're just like smooth as glass. There's nothing for me to grip onto. Sure. I'm sure there are other actors who would think, oh, I can do those roles in my sleep and, you know, good luck to you, but I can't. To follow your analogy, that would be a slippery slope, so to yeah. speak, to kind of continue I mean, doing Jake. The, the simple way of, I mean, you can actually just cut the whole of the last 10 minutes and just put this in. Essentially, I like playing character roles. I don't like playing leading roles. Mm. If the character role happens to be number one on the call sheet, well, lucky old me. Mm. But... I want to play characters, not leads. Sure. Um, if, if the leads are sort of slightly co- cookie cutter, central casting, two dimensional guys, you know, you know what I mean? So Ed, you just said you like playing characters almost under extreme duress. Was there like one role you had where you felt it was really symbolic of what you wanted to do as an actor? Oh, Oh, well, <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm not sure this is symbolic of what I want to do as an actor, but the role I have, and it's such, I mean, it's such a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason, but the role I've most kind of quote unquote enjoyed, and I really sort of mean that and certainly found most fulfilling. And in terms of maintaining that enjoyment and sense of fulfillment over a long period of time was playing Hamlet which I did about 15, nearly 15 years ago. And again, I was, I was, you know, I was only half a dozen years out of drama school. So I was definitely kind of figuring out how to, you know, do it. But, um, you know, if you were talking about, you know, a rock face with lots of places to stick your hands and your feet, I mean, that's like the epitome of that, that role. Um, it is kind of infinitely, malleable and open to interpretation so there's something there for everyone and there's lots there for everyone in fact and you know i do remember you know finishing playing that role and thinking yeah i'll actually probably never get that sense of fulfillment from a role ever again um how how sort of naff but it was completely the case and obviously he has an awful lot of turmoil and each soliloquy is a kind of internal wrestling with himself. So it was certainly ticking my boxes. Um, yeah. Uh, but just, <clears throat> yeah, the more, the more, the more my character has to overcome. Mm-hmm. Essentially is another phrase that one could use is subtext. Mm-hmm. You know, the more subtext a character has, the happier I am, which, you know, to put it in sort of simple, oversimplistic terms is I'm saying one thing, but thinking another, mm-hmm. you know, that is, that is a sort of, that's a form of subtext. Um, and so, you know, and, and, you know, it seemed to me that quite often the Jakes didn't have an awful lot of subtext. What they mm-hmm. said was what they meant. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I find that much more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's because I'm quite sort of in my head as a person. Um, so if my character is also in their head, 
that feels familiar and something that I can, you know. So you play quite a lot of cerebral characters, you could say, like Tchaikovsky, Alan Turing. Yeah, I've played a lot of mathematicians. I mean, I'm not even joking. The play I was doing when COVID hit and we had to finish the play, we had to come off the off stage. I was playing a mathematician and it was like my fifth mathematician or something. But I like playing mathematicians. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I'm probably sort of, I'm probably a bit too cerebral for my own good. And I don't mean that in a kind of conceited way, in some respects, it's sort of a bit of an affectation, which is definitely not a good thing, but it would be good. You know, at the same time, I actually also really like doing physical stuff filming wise, because the physical stuff necessarily takes you out of your head. So yeah, which, you know, so which is one of the reasons why, you know, we we all feel so fortunate to do the job that we do actors i mean is because you know there's kind of never a dull moment you know you're always being presented with some new experience new challenge with different personnel completely different circumstances you know i you know i i do sort of i i do feel and not in a kind of snide way i really do feel for the for people who get on the same train every five days a week and you know sit down at the same desk in front of the same computer and look at the same spreadsheets or whatever i mean i've got a great admiration for those people because i would just go nuts i'd just go nuts can i so ask I'm, you yeah I'm lucky. can i ask you uh, another question because you're talking about you like doing cerebral roles you like doing physical roles and yeah. um, Dominic touched on it briefly, but you've played quite a few significant characters, historical characters who are now deceased, such as like Tchaikovsky, uh, Alan Turing, uh, William the Conqueror and King Philip. So are you pulling on another resource or using another specific process to bring these characters to life in an authentic way does it is that is that bringing something out of you again or something else out of you uh i I like being given as much information as possible Mm. i'm really happy to be given a really detailed character biography by the writer for example um and so if you're playing an actual personage personage from history then, yeah, I will definitely do research around that person and read up on them. And then uh, kind of try and meld that with what the script writer has given me because, you know, sometimes, you know, you can read that your character, you know, was extremely kind of placid and benevolent, but for some reason the script writer has decided to make him quite violent and malevolent well it's difficult to play someone who's violent and malevolent as this kind of nice person so yeah. at the end of the day you've got to you've got to try and deliver what's on the page but the kind of more you know the more background i can fill in on the canvas the happier i am um so i will absolutely do research and things like you know i played dh lawrence on stage about 12 years ago 
And I traveled up to the town where he was born and where he lived, um, which is called Eastwood, if I remember, outside Nottingham. And I kind of walked around the hills. I stayed there for a few days and I walked around the hills and I went to his home. His home is like a little museum. And I walked out to where the, the, the mine, the, the coal, the pit used to be and just walked and just sort of walked around a bit and just sort of tried to get a feel. And, you know, when I went on stage and played D.H. Lawrence, I wasn't consciously remembering the kind of rolling green hills of outside Nottingham, but it's all just sort of gone in by osmosis. I mean, I believe, and it might just be a placebo, but then it doesn't matter because placebos work. I believe that doing things like that are beneficial and um, they're certainly not a hindrance. So do them. Why not do them? And some of them will be, you know, will have more of an impact than others, but it's all worthwhile. It's all grist to the mill. So get on with it and, and do it. I'm, I'm quite envious of the actors who appear to be able to just kind of learn their lines in the makeup chair and then just walk on and, you know, tweet something as the camera turns over and then walk to their mark and play the scene. I don't know how the hell they, I honestly have no idea how they do that. Wow. Um, it's like witchcraft for me. I can't do that. I have to, I said this actually in, in an interview I did for, for the, for the play earlier this year, I actually find my job quite hard, which I don't mind, but yeah, it's, I don't find my job easy. Um, and in some respect, I'm making it harder for myself because that's the, my personality and, and, you know, which is a sort of bit of a annoying cross to bear. But at the same time, I'm sort of glad I'm not one of those actors who can just send a tweet, hit their walk to their mark and play the scene because, you know, I think my peaks are probably higher. My troughs are lower but, you know, the corollary is that my peaks are higher. So, you know. Wouldn't it be the case that if the roles are still feeling difficult, doesn't that mean like in a kind of going to the gym sense, you're kind of exercising a slightly different muscle, meaning that you're going to get a slightly different performance. So you're not just phoning it in. So yeah, yeah, speak. yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, you know, I love catharsis. I mean, like, honestly, you offer me a bit of the, the chance for a bit of catharsis. I, I'll grab it with both hands. And so, you know, I, I want to play roles where I have a chance of, and just purely selfishly, to kind of feel that rush, because it is a kind of rush, of transformation, of embodying someone else for a short, relatively short period of time and really getting inside someone else's head and skin. We've all done it because we've all been kids. We've all run around the woods and seen a branch that has a bit coming off it, like the handle of a gun, and picked it up and run around towards our seven-year-old friends or whatever, going, ba 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 We've all done it. It's just called playing. Um, and it is exhilarating. 
it's not we all we've all experienced it we all know what this thing is and so to be given the opportunity to you know chase that and grasp it for a little short period in one's professional work is kind of astonishing really it's, it's sort of like it feels like a con <laughs> don't tell anyone but lots of actors would work for we do our jobs for much less than we some of us get paid. Um, that's not true. Um, we need no. We're all going. I mean, I imagine we're all going to get paid less now. I mean, aren't we? Because yeah. Anyway, um, so no, I like yeah, I like that. I like the stuff that makes me feel like I'm twisted in knots. Um, it makes me feel alive. It makes me feel alive and present and visceral and you know, sort of. Yeah. So hopefully that's a good segue to ask you about portraying Philip II in Nightfall. Can you tell us a bit about that role and um, your approach to it? Um, <clears throat> well, there's a certain, there's a little bit about him. There's not an awful lot written about him. So the research you know the research wasn't that helpful on this occasion uh so i had to sort of, i so i had to rely on the script i mean there was something kind of slightly odd about philip in in the first series and um i should just say that um dominic mingella who was our lead writer and showrunner on series one is wonderful. And I adore him and he did a great job. He did a really fantastic job. Um, but I found playing Philip in series one quite hard because essentially he was in a, he was in a situation where he was ignorant of certain certain kind of extremely important bits of information like his best friend was having sex with his wife and so i was kind of he was sort of fumbling around in the dark and do you find that hard to play when the character knows less than the audience it's certainly hard not necessarily when he knows less than the audience it's hard to play when he knows less than the other characters in the scene because almost by definition, the kind of momentum is with them. What's driving the scene is their internal narrative. You know, even, yeah. you know, that's what, the, that's what the audience understands. And it's really what the audience is focusing on, even unconsciously. Um, you know, if, if, Phil, if my character, King Philip, is saying to Tom Cullen's character, Landry, who's having sex with my wife, although I don't know that, unbeknownst to me, if I'm saying, oh, God, I don't really know why she's not into me anymore, and he's going, no, don't worry, you know, it'll be all right, why well, have you tried this? The audience is with his character, with Tom's character. Because um, he's got the subtext. Because he's got a subtext. He's got a subtext which they're aware of. Um, I've got no subtext. You know, he sort of has no subtext. Um, and, you know, and then similarly, I was with Julian Ovenden's character, who was Denogre, my kind of, um, you know, chief advisor, my kind of conciliary. He also had kind of machinations going on. 
and you know plates he was spinning and da 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 and i'd sort of you know and i'd have scenes with julian where you know i'd be sort of saying well you know what should we do about this and he'd say well we should probably do this uh knowing that it was for you know that that was going to benefit him personally or whatever the hell and or help his little secret plan and i'd be like oh yeah all right fair enough uh, it's hard and again as i say the audience the the kind of the weight of gravity uh, is with the other character in the scene, which almost by definition makes Philip, in this case, feel more insubstantial and lighter. Uh, I'm not meaning to be derogatory in any way. I mean, it's just how the story went. Um, but it, I found it harder to play that because, to come back to my analogy, you know, his rock face was sort of pretty smooth. How did you overcome it? Because the way you're describing it to me now, it reminds me of, um, I think it was like John Borman's film, Excalibur, when um, Lancelot is with Guinevere without right. King Arthur actually knowing. Yeah, that's right, and, actually. And, um, I have thought just, of that. You're right. Yeah, and I'm just thinking, as an actor who can see this, I don't know, I don't want to call it a car crash, but this kind of traffic jam about what you can and can't do with your character in the distance. What was your fear about how you was going to approach that and how did you eventually overcome it? Well, it's arguable as to whether I did overcome it. Um, I mean, just, you know, I was, there's another word that I found myself using, which is I like characters uh, who have some, torsion in them t-o-r-s-i-o-n right it's quite a sort of onomatopoeic word isn't it? but also it's just that idea you can feel that it's that mm. that uh that won't work on radio so probably that was sort of twisting yeah. um <clears throat> so i just tried to find the sort of torsion in philip which you know was some in some scenes was easier and in some scenes was harder um but something for me to play against i mean again it's just kind of drama school notion but it, it's useful is that you want to find the obstacle that your character is confronted with mm. and what you don't want to do is play the obstacle in other words you know if your character is really ashamed because they've just lost all of their wife's savings gambling on the horses. Mm. What you don't do is have your character walk home and walk into the kitchen and be really ashamed. Mm. He plays against the shame sure. and plays kind of too jocular or too jovial or whatever it is. But what you don't do is, is come in playing shame. Right? Yeah. So, um, I just had to try and find something that I could play against. Um, and it's hard because, you know, his obstacle was his kind of fear and disquiet over his wife's seeming coldness towards him. Mm. And a lot of my scenes were discussing my wife's coldness towards me. So, like, the obstacle was the, was the, was the scene. Mm. 
Tom's character had the obstacle, the obstacle being, ah, I know why she's cold. It's because she's fucking me. Yeah. Um, and he can play against that, but I, I, I couldn't. So it was a trick. The season one was trickier. One, at the end of season one, when I found out that he was having sex with my wife and that she was carrying his baby, then it was obstacles are plenty. <laughs> and, and then for the, so for the second season, the second season was sort of, you know, easier in quotation marks to put to play for me because I had, first of all, I had a clearer, um, you know, goal that I was driving towards, which was to find Tom and kill him. Um, uh, but also um, I had more agency and I had more knowledge, which... Um, you know, allows more variables, uh, which brings color and brings choices. And then now you're all right. So the second season was, was, yeah, I mean, it's, it's true to say the second season was more enjoyable. Um, because I had something to get, you know, I had something to, I had something, you know, with greater kind of mass, uh, and and texture to play with. That's interesting to me because it sounds a little bit like uh, the Walter White character from Breaking Bad, where like your King Philip starts off right. as a very contained character who's just kind of absorbing a lot of pressure <laughs> from the outside world and then kind of unleashes it um, as he becomes more knowledgeable about what the world around him and what he can, he's capable of doing or he's allowing himself to do. Yeah. I mean, yes. Although Walter White, you know, from the get go, he's got this enormous obstacle over to overcome, which is that he's going to die of cancer and he wants to protect his family. Sure. Um, and then you've also got the nice subtext, which you don't learn about until much later on is, which is that, you know, he was one of three people who started this biotech company or whatever that thing was, who subsequently became multimillionaires and they kind of eased him out and he went into teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's that other color, <coughs> which I'm sure, um, Vince Gilligan, Gilligan. what was his name? That's Vince right. Gilligan. Vince Gilligan. Yeah. Which I'm sure was something that he discussed from the get go with Brian Cranston and stuff. So yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, that character has an astonishing development over the series um but yeah i mean i'd rather have played walter white (laughs) i really enjoy doing that i really enjoy doing nightfall but i don't think it will come as an enormous shock to people if i say look if you give me the choice of playing walter white or keeping it i'd have chosen to play walter white but um yeah anyway Um, maybe maybe in the prequel yeah, it could still happen. We did recently hear about the passing of the great Swedish actor Max von Sydow, and in fact, Edgy worked with him in the 2008 film Branded. So I wondered if you could share with us your memories of working with von Sydow and you if know, perhaps listen, you learned anything from him. I'm so, you know, guys, sorry, I really should have given you a heads up here. Um, that in that film, um, I I met Max von Sydow. <laughs> I don't think we actually ever shared any screen time because he was essentially this kind of malevolent puppet master 
yeah. who was tormenting my character. But I think I was even ignorant of his existence. I think I was ignorant of even his existence. Um, so I'm afraid I never, I did not strictly speaking work with Max von Sydow. Oh, um, although obviously it was, it was terribly sad when he died. Um, an icon, a true, true icon. Um, and, you know, all of those, not just Scandinavian, but just European film actors who made their way to Hollywood, uh, a lot of them were following in his footsteps. So, yeah, it was very sad. But I've got yeah. no insights, I'm afraid. I've got okay. no juicy Max von Sydow anecdote. Uh, could, you could you tell us a little bit about perhaps Jeffrey Tambor? Because he's quite um, a popular figure on... Uh, TV, particularly Transparent and Arrested Development. Uh, what, was, what was your time like working with Jeffrey Tambor? Well, I must say, he was great company, Jeffrey. He really was. We were in Moscow for a couple of months. And he was, he was wonderful. He was great fun. He was great to work with. Um, he was very professional, but at the same time, you know, very kind of loose and um and you know happy to kind of try stuff he wasn't kind of um you know he was he wasn't a, he wasn't demanding there was no kind of prima donna antics so it was lovely i i have fond memories of working with jeffrey i know he then subsequently got in some hot water because of some comments he made while making transparent mm. um don't really know what to say about that. I mean, but but I enjoyed working with him, and yeah, and and yeah, and I and again, and honestly, I have kind of no recollection of him ever saying anything untoward to anyone. Is the honest truth. Um, and he was funny and charming, and yeah, real sort of real joy to work with. What did you think of the kind of the, the idea behind that film, Branded? I know it's going back in the past, oh God, but it's like it a science fiction concept. It was mad. <laughs> it, was, it was like mad. But, I mean, I, I sort of quite liked it. For those, for those handful of people who have not seen this film, um, I was playing a Russian advertising exec, if I remember this correctly, or like marketing exec. That's correct, yeah. And essentially... I'm, you know, I'm this kind of high-flying marketing exec in Moscow, and uh, <clears throat> I have a sort of nervous breakdown, I seem to remember, and I wind up in the country. I wind up sort of living this her sort of hermit-style life in the country. Anyway, I return to Moscow to find that I'm able to see these kind of, like, manifestations these forms mm. that reflect the multinational companies from which they emanate and i literally mean that word emanate you know yeah. this was the the, the vfx uh, but only i could see them and i could basically see that it was kind of you know the phrase free market capitalism read in tooth and claw yeah. made manifest 
um, you know, these brands, these kind of, they were sort of like, well, help me guys. They were creatures. It's like they live meets how to get ahead in advertising in terms of okay. like a science fiction like, concept. What, what was the first reference? They live. That was the one with Rowdy Roddy Piper where he's got the dark glasses. And when he puts them on, oh, never he that. can see the, he can see the robots, the alien robots that are underneath the human skin. It's like a famous oh, film in the 80s where a guy, it's a sci-fi film in the 80s where like a, it's a normal everyday American construction worker. He buys these kind of glasses whilst he's unemployed. And when he puts them on, he realizes that they're human beings, but there's these secret signs and the adverts around the wall. And um, some people are actually like, they've got these Terminator droids uh, underneath their human flesh skin. So they're actually, and they end up being like in higher positions of power. Wow. Yeah. God. Okay. I'm, yeah, I missed all the 80s sci-fi horror stuff, sadly. Um, For real? But yeah, okay. It was a, a bit like that. So anyway, um, but I quite like, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, um, I'm, I'm quite disillusioned with free market capitalism. Yeah. I'm not enamored of, you know, Marxism either, but clearly capitalism has failed lots and lots of us lots mm. of people um and <clears throat> i sort of don't like and america of course is the sort of apogee of this i don't like the kind of survival of the fittest thing mm. and the sort of rapacious drive for profits i find it all i think it's really really harmful and what we're experiencing right now yeah it's, it feels like something of a backlash, the latest one in fairness, because it's not the first, but people realizing that actually society that we've created screws over a whole lot of people. Mm. And, you know, who is always, I mean, everyone always says it's Churchill, you know, when yeah. they can't think who, who, where a quote comes from, they always just say, I think it was Churchill, yeah. but this one may possibly actually have been Churchill. But, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and actually, if we could find a benevolent dictator, I'd be up for that. I really yeah. would. Yeah. Yeah. Who what was the name of, um, <clears throat> oh, shit, what was his name? Different. Was it Xerxes? Who was, who was the kind of Persian emperor? Was it Xerxes? Xerxes sounds right. Xerxes, who basically Xerxes had freedom. Xerxes of was a Persian emperor. Yeah, was he the one who did freedom of religion and stuff? He was the son of Darius the Great. Um, he's the old Persian, forty-eight-five to forty-six-five BC. He was known as Xerxes the Great, and um, I can't find his philosophy. Dom, bail me out of this one, mate. Okay. Well, while you were going off on that um, rabbit hole, I did um, Google. Syrian leaders, and I think it's actually Cyrus the Great Cyrus. who had religious tolerance. Cyrus, thank you, well done. Sure. He, was, he believed in freedom of religion, and he was the closest thing mankind has ever come to a benevolent dictator. And it sounded brilliant. So if we could find a modern-day, yeah, benevolent dictator, if there's one out there, let me know. That was the end of part one of the Inspiration interview with Ed Stoppard. You have been listening to Geek Sweat. 